Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Cage Kumaladun. Today we take you to the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations in Rockland, Maine, where Ambassador Derek Mitchell discussed democracy and international security. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. It will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear this program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. This program will also be available as a podcast. Introducing Ambassador Mitchell today is George Look, Midcoast Forum President. Good afternoon. It's very good to see so many members and guests here today for Ambassador Mitchell's talk. And I'd like to welcome those listening on the stations of Maine Public Radio. This meeting of the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations comes to you from the Elks Events Center in Rockland, and I'm George Look. The Midcoast Forum was formed in 1983, and this is its 452nd meeting, with a foreign affairs expert invited to speak and answer questions on an issue critical to the formulation of U.S. foreign policy. The Midcoast Forum's website, midcoastforum.org, contains audios of past forum programs and information about upcoming forum speakers. Audios of our speakers are now also available as a podcast on the Maine Monitor website, mainmonitor.org. If you're interested in keeping informed about key foreign affairs issues, or if you're just visiting as a guest today, but you want to, and want to become a member of the forum, you'll find our membership forum on our website, and we hope you'll decide to join us. Today we're pleased to have Ambassador Derek Mitchell with us today, speaking on democracy and international security. Ambassador Derek Mitchell became president of the National Democratic Institute in 2018, returning there more than two decades after he departed the Institute in 1997, where he had spent nearly four years as the Institute's senior program officer for Asia and the former Soviet Union. During the time between his positions at the National Democratic Institute, Ambassador Mitchell had a distinguished career in and out of the U.S. government, working issues on the connection between democracy and international security. From 2012 to 2016, he served as U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of the Union of Myanmar, which is formerly, of course, known as Burma. He was America's first ambassador to the country in 22 years. Just prior to him becoming ambassador in 2011 and 2012, he served as the U.S. Department of State's first special representative and policy coordinator for Burma with the rank of ambassador. From 2009 to 2011, Ambassador Mitchell served as principal deputy assistant secretary of defense for Asian and Pacific security affairs. He spent six months of that time as the acting assistant secretary. In these positions, he was responsible for overseeing the Defense Department's security policy in Northeast, Southeast, South, and Central Asia. At the conclusion of this service, he received the Office of the Secretary of Defense Award for Distinguished Public Service. Ambassador Mitchell has also served as a senior fellow and director of the Asia Division at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, as a Special Assistant for Asian and Pacific Affairs in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. He began his work in Washington in 1986 as a Foreign Policy Assistant in the Office of Senator Edward Kennedy. 
Most recently, Ambassador Mitchell has been a senior advisor at the Albright Stonebridge Group, the United States Institute of Peace, and the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He has been a lecturer for the Stanford and Washington program. He has authored numerous books, articles, policy reports, and opinion pieces on international affairs. He received a Master's of Arts in Law and Diplomacy from the Fletcher School at Tufts University and a Bachelor's Degree from the University of Virginia. Derek, welcome to the Midcoast Forum. Thank you, George. I do want to congratulate this forum in particular the, and commend you at the Midcoast Forum on Foreign Relations for hosting these talks. I understand you're celebrating your 40th year, and last night someone said I was something like the 435th speaker, literally 435th. That's a lot of speakers. Um, I don't know how many of you have come to those. But um, DC folks need to come out. We really do. This is an idea that I, I mean, I didn't know this existed, but boy, do we need this. And I'm going to be talking about democracy and security, mostly about international democracy and international security. But here in the United States, we need democracy uh, and these types of forums. So we come out, talk about what we do. We are unelected representatives of, of the American people, and you need to know what we do, and we need to hear from people as well. So really, this is, um, I know you all are more informed and experienced than the average citizen, but uh, I'm very privileged to be here today. So, as I said, the topic today is democracy and national security, two terms that are not often put in the same sentence, democracy and national security. Um, as reflected in my biography, my bio, I worked in the Pentagon and I worked at NDI. And there are two different communities that, uh, that who work on these and often have very distinct and very different cultures. Um, each side, frankly, has looked at my work with some, you know, sort of a, a jaundiced eye and said, how can you go from the Pentagon to NDI or NDI to the Pentagon? But I have always viewed these two concepts, these two ideas, as intimately linked. And I want to talk about that. First, it is reasonable to ask, how we define these concepts, national security, just broadly. In my view, the de definition of national security in the broadest terms involves the preservation and protection of a nation's sovereignty, independence, and overall well-being. The definition of democracy can get complicated. It can be defined in various ways, but frankly it comes, even though in various forms, has some, at its essence, five core concepts. Democracy anywhere. Transparency, accountability, inclusivity, representation, and rule of law. In other words, it's a political system where the people are sovereign, where all are equal under the law, able to have their voices heard and to keep an eye on government activity, and ultimately can hold those governing them accountable. Very, very practical. People sometimes think of democracy as an ideology. It's very, very practical. Freedom House is about to put out its annual democracy index. They do that every year. It might be a depressing moment, as for 16 straight years, they have marked democracy, international democracy's consistent decline. Many of you likely know the litany, the return of coups in Africa, the rise of populist strongmen in Latin America, the reversal of hopeful moments in places like Myanmar, Tunisia, Georgia, and elsewhere, 
increasing polarization, demagoguery, and backsliding in even many uh, established democracies, including, of course, our own. And of course, the ongoing tragedy in Ukraine daily in the headlines. It seems like democracy is on its heels and autocracy is on the march. But looking around the world, one can see another story taking shape, one that could get overlooked amidst an array of bad news. It's reflected in the brave women of Iran, Syria, and Belarus, the young people of Myanmar, Cuba, and Nigeria, the incredible resilience and resistance of the Ukrainian people, even in the white paper protest that spread all over China late last year. Democratic energy, in fact, is alive and well. Popular expectations and demands today on governments, all governments, are high these days, coming at the expense of both democratic and autocratic regimes who cannot deliver. But it is evident that people everywhere continue to put everything on the line when necessary to advance or preserve their democratic rights, voice, and dignity, even in the face of brutal repression. Dem democracy is not in decline, it's under attack. From within countries, as well as from those outside a nation's borders who have a clear interest in preserving a world for autocracy. The stakes for us of the global struggle for rights and dignity go beyond concerns over so-called American values or our personal empathy for other struggles, though that all matters. Study after study show a direct connection between democracy and national well-being, democracy and development. Specifically, they show correlation between democracy and economic growth, poverty reduction, social cohesion, better public health and education outcomes, including for women and girls, higher life expectancy, lower infant and, mort uh, and maternal mortality, a cleaner environment, lasting peace, and better access to electricity, the internet, and clean water. Other than that, that's not much. <laughs> study after study has shown this. This is not just something we're, we're saying, oh, we witnessed this. Study after study are showing these connections. And the impact of democracy isn't limited within a single nation's borders. When people have agency and opportunity at home, they have little to no reason to flee across borders in desperation, pressuring and potentially destabilizing neighbors. When national leaders have an incentive to focus on practical solutions to national problems and to deliver public goods to their people, they have less incentive to engage in foreign adventures. That's why democracies do not go to war with one another and why, and why studies have proved that wars are more likely as democracy degrades and autocratic tendencies surge. A local health crisis became a pandemic in large part because of an autocratic nation's natural impulse to hide negative information and intimidate, if not punish, those who tell inconvenient truths. Democracy matters. Ample evidence exists that nations tend to project those norms and values by which they operate at home into the international arena. When opaque and corrupt domestically, they act accordingly abroad. Uncomfortable with the free speech and access to information at home, they will move to restrict it abroad. And allied with other powerful autocracies with similar values, they can leverage their collective power to try to reshape the international system consistent with their narrow self-interest rather than the global good. Nonetheless, there remain countless foreign policy elites 
who consider promotion of democracy irrelevant to international security at best, presumptuous, arrogant, or a dangerous distraction at worst. An idealistic endeavor, an idealistic endeavor perhaps, but unworthy of the seriously-minded foreign policy hand. But to dismiss the practical impact of global democracy on our national security and the importance of popular attitudes in the digital age is willfully and strategically blind. President Biden is right to call the competition over norms, rules, and values a defining issue of our time. The question is who will define those, in those norms in coming years and shape them, shape the international system as it comes under stress unseen in decades. Now, let me turn for a moment to my organization, the National Democratic Institute, NDI, you heard about in the, in the biography. Uh, we're as old as this forum, by the way. We are 40 years old. We are marking our 40th anniversary this year. Uh, Democratic Congressman Dante Fussell, in fact, was the first to introduce a bill calling for the establishment of an institute to promote democracy abroad in the 1960s. But it was a, a speech by Ronald Reagan at Westminster in 1982 that is commonly considered the foundational moment for contemporary democracy support activity. Reagan argued that the, the communist bloc actively promoted its values worldwide and that the West should be unapologetic in doing the same. He thus called for the US government to support the established of American non-governmental non institutions to help foster what he termed the infrastructure of democracy around the world. A year later, the National Endowment for Democracy was established, along with institutes representing the Democratic and Republican parties. There's a, there's a counterpart of ours called the International Republican Institute, along those representing business and labor. Reagan's vision was based on an expectation of a long twilight struggle with the Soviet Union, but it was only after the Cold War's end that democracy support really hit its stride. That was a time, as you all remember, when history seemed to end and liberal democracy appeared victorious as a wave of democratic change rolled gradually through Asia, Africa, Eastern Europe, and Latin America. NDI cut its teeth in the 1980s, assisting with transitions in the Philippines, in Taiwan, and Chile, in the 1990s with South Africa, Poland, and elsewhere. We and others became well known for normalizing the practice of international election observation. But we assisted countries also to develop their political parties, their legislatures, civil society organizations, judicial bodies, and free media, each component essential to any functioning democracy, while at the same time promoting democratic cultural practices, including open communication, consultation, and compromise, things we likely need to be learning ourselves. Over time, our scope expanded even further into harnessing the democratic potential of new digital technologies and ensuring women, young people, the disabled, LGBTQ plus persons, and other traditionally marginalized communities are embedded into the political and civic life of nations. Inclusivity, all equally inclusive. Although affiliated with the Democratic Party, we chose not to just work with leftist or progressive forces abroad, but with anyone who demonstrated commitment to democratic practice across the political spectrum. Our interest as a democracy NGO was not in outcomes, but in process. To do this work, we've often opened offices in many of the countries in which we operate. 
We understood, like with diplomacy, there was no substitute for being on the ground on a sustained basis to understand local conditions and build the long-term relationships of partnership and trust that are the lifeblood of our work. Far from exporting the American model, as critics might suggest, our method was to listen to local voices, let them identify their biggest challenges, and then tap into our network of, of democratic practitioners around the world to share best practices and lessons learned from their unique experience dealing with similar challenges in their countries. That means, in practice, we will invite a Mexican election commissioner to offer tips to colleagues in Nepal or Nigeria, a political party leader in Kenya to work with colleagues in uh, Tunisia, um, Georgian experts on parallel vote tabulation to assist associated groups in Zambia and Ukraine, etc. So at all times, we have approached our work with humility. To be a democracy is to be a struggling democracy, after all. We are all works in progress. So we don't lecture or wag a finger, but share best practices, lessons, and ideas and let countries decide for themselves what works best for them. And while the work itself is valuable, equally so is the message that we send through simply doing our work that we are with them, we support them, and we're with them in solidarity across distant borders and boundaries. A vast majority of our offices, I should note, are not led by Americans, and our local hires make up virtually the rest of our offices, with many of them going on to be presidents, prime ministers, civil society leaders um, themselves, ever expanding our global network. Let me say finally that one of our largest, most active and longest running offices, incidentally, has been our office in Ukraine. For three decades, we have worked there to promote women's political participation. It's no, uh, it's no coincidence that when you go, go on TV and you see MPs, women MPs, talking on behalf of Ukraine, those are our partners, people we've worked with for 20, 25 years. We have assisted the parliament in constituent servicing, communications, help Ukraine's vibrant civil society to combat corruption and enhance local governance outside Kyiv. And we've worked with those inside the country who seek to combat the avalanche of disinformation that is poisoning the country ever since 2014, in fact, from Russia. Because what Russia tests there, they use elsewhere, as we all know. So the benefits of what we do are, and the learning we do is not simply one way. Our country, our office in, uh, in Kiev is now reopened and we continue to work there if slightly different form. But when the fighting stops, it will be essential that we continue our investment over the long run to ensure the country builds back democratically and the Ukrainian people win the peace as well as the war. Now, there's only one country outside the remit of NDI, and that's the United States. Uh, there's enough, I think all of you are probably working on that on a daily basis. Uh, the need here is great, uh, but there are plenty of others doing that work, and we, by charter, essentially do not do that. We only work overseas. Madeleine Albright, who served as our chair for more than two decades until her passing last year, used to say if she couldn't be Secretary of State, she wanted to be chair of NDI, a line I always appreciated. She also famously liked to say, or call herself, an optimist who worries a lot. <laughs> Forty years on, it's no secret that the challenges to democracy are as serious today as they have ever been in our history. And they are growing, including 
the failure of many old and new democracies, as I said, to deliver according to popular expectation. The emergence of demagogues who capitalize on frustration, fear, and primal resentments to gain power and then gradually degrade democratic institutions in order to retain that power. The ascendance, as noted, of digital technologies that hold great positive potential, but too often are misused and even structured to sow division and spread disinformation more quickly and widely than ever. And as noted earlier, the rise of large authoritarian states who are increasingly active in seeking to undermine liberalism at home and abroad and shape international norms in their image. If some at home don't think democracy matters, our autocratic adversaries sure seem to. The first section of China and Russia's joint statement almost exactly a year ago, the one in which they declared an alliance without limits, the first section of that statement was dedicated to democracy. Not real democracy, of course, but a perverted version that allowed them in the statement to claim that they are the true standard bearers of democratic values. This is similar to how China has joined UN and other international uh, organizations, important ones, in order to subvert them from within by redefining their operational principles to conform to their own interests. In a way, China and Russia's attempt to appropriate and subvert the concept of democracy demonstrates the power of the democratic idea, even in the eyes of the world's leading autocratic nations. But it also provides insight into their insecurity in their greatest vulnerability. Real democracy, open access to information, free expression, accountability, is threatening because these nation's leaders fear anything that will threaten their control of the narrative and thus their pretension of popular support and legitimacy. Not only their power and privilege are at risk, but also their international reputation. It's why the Communist Party of China, for instance, spends more on internal security than on national defense, which is hardly a sign of self-confidence. It's a reason, among others, why the CCP is so concerned about Taiwan. Taiwan's economy, society, and democracy served as a sustained high-profile and frontal rebuke to the CCP's contention that democracy is somehow inconsistent with Chinese culture and values. If Taiwan could be a democratic success, well, why not Hong Kong? Why not Shanghai? Why not Beijing? Their fear of democracy's success is why the CCP felt it imperative to crush Hong Kong's democracy movement and imprison its leaders and suppress so harshly, if more quietly, the recent flash of opposition in Chinese cities late last year and go on the offensive abroad. Democracy, including Ukraine's, constitutes a similar challenge to Putin. If credible elections are allowed in Ukraine or elsewhere around its periphery, then why not in Russia? I would further argue, incidentally, that Ukraine's democracy itself, imperfect as it is and was, has been the foundation of the incredible resilience and fortitude that we have witnessed over the past year. From President Zelensky to the local mayors to those women MPs, all of these politicians have legitimacy in the eyes of the people. That legitimacy has strengthened national cohesion and its steadfast defense. Though it may seem laughable to think China, Russia, and others can succeed in redefining democracy, however, we are complacent at our peril. Ukraine and Taiwan aside, China and Russia constitute a continuing serious threat to democracies worldwide, 
whether it's China's export of surveillance in a box technologies, or Russia's political subversion and Wagner group violence in Africa, Syria, as well as Ukraine. Their information operations worldwide recognize the domestic connection between democracy and national security. When nations are busy fighting themselves at home, they are less effective in focusing on challenges abroad. A nation inflamed and polarized by disinformation is hamstrung in conducting political debates on national security and otherwise that are based on a common set of facts and stop at the partisan water's edge and therefore pay attention to what is happening around the world. Both China and Russia are applying considerable political energy and billions of dollars to shape the information environment. China's so-called sharp power tactics seek to compel free societies to toe the Chinese line. Levering their huge domestic market, the CCP continues to coerce companies from the United Airlines to the NBA to Hollywood to do what they say and strong-arm global media to censor facts that are inc inconvenient to their preferred narrative. Now, while their heavy-handedness is inducing a backlash in more and more places, the challenge is serious. And crucially, autocratic networks are increasingly supporting one another at state and non-state levels in what the essayist Ann Applebaum has branded Autocracy, Inc. Russia provided a lifeline to Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus, to Minon Lang of Myanmar, and along with China, Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela after they came under severe pressure from their populations and democracies everywhere. Their corrupt elites work with one another. They underwrite each other's businesses, defend each other at the United Nations, and uh, when attacked politically for their conduct, and share disinformation techniques to preserve their power against democratic pressure. This affects not only political, but also our corporate interests, which are disadvantaged in opaque and kleptocratic environments. The fact is there is no such thing as a level playing field. The conditions either, play, either favor them or they favor us. We thus need to recognize the strategic challenge we face and respond accordingly. The question is whether we will seek to shape that playing field or let China and Russia continue and others do so with impunity. So what should we do in response to that challenge? First, information is the lifeblood of democracy. We must harness the positive potential of digital tools, put those tools in the hands of democracy activists around the world, and help to, uh, and induce tech engineers to design for democracy, as we call it, rather than design for division. To ensure social media platforms are wired to promote dialogue and moderation, rather than confrontation and extremism. When autocrats start to turn off the light, we need to make sure people everywhere maintain the ability um, to access information, facts, truth, quality information. We will never get rid of disinformation entirely. But we must mitigate its viral spread where possible and facilitate digital literacy so citizens can judge the quality of what they are reading. We must increase funding for free media, including surrogate media like Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and others for internews, which is represented by Jeannie right here, and be more intentional, smart, and confident about how we promote democratic values. We must be more assertive in chi challenging China's narratives about itself and about us and about democracy. We must help nations to understand their playbook and come to the aid of those subject 
to coercion. We must double down on supporting women and youth as the hopeful future, the energy of democracy around the world that we see in place after place after place. Women and young people are providing the energy that we are seeing on the ground and the hopeful future of democratic progress. Investing in traditionally marginalized communities will open up political systems to new perspectives, fresh mindsets, and a more inclusive array of voices. We must make sure democracy delivers so citizens can see the practical connection between democracy and a better life. Democratic allies must focus on providing extra resources to those nations undergoing tenuous transitions. And our work must not just be about process and institutions, in fact, but include attention to practical outcomes. Never again should the United States invade a country on the pretext of promoting democracy. Doing so will not only end in inevitable failure, but undermine the credibility of our democratic goals and thus our national security. Imposing democracy, as Madeline used to comment, imposing democracy is an oxymoron. <laughs> by, by nature, it comes from below. And of course, democracy work must begin at home. I know I don't need to tell anyone here about the importance of that. People often ask me how we, can, as an American organization, can promote democracy abroad when democracy is in such crisis here in the United States. Isn't it hypocritical? Well, there is no doubt that the American example matters for the work that we do. For better or worse, in the eyes of billions around the world, the United States serves as the bellwether for democracy's promise or peril. That status is a privilege, but also a responsibility. Indeed, any coming normative competition with China cannot be divorced from the example we set at home and the need for democratic reformation and unity. And those who care about that competition need to recognize the need for that democratic and reformation and unity here at home. But we have also found in our work that those around the world bravely standing up to oppression are not waiting for the United States to, to get it right, to achieve a more perfect union before seeking justice and dignity for themselves. They don't seek democratic rights for America's sake, but for their own. Even as we must work on ourselves, they continue to welcome whatever solidarity and support we and others can provide them. We must step up in not only their interests, but in our own. In the end, no single factor will create a more stable, secure, and prosperous world. But when a single factor does make a key difference in health, education, development, and peace outcomes, you think we would prioritize that factor in our strategy. The US foreign policy and national security community must come, and the American people, I should add, must come to recognize the essential connection between democracy and national security and integrate it into national policy formulation. We must train our diplomats, development specialists, defense establishment, and partner with our private sector accordingly draw up whole-of-government and whole-of-society strategies to advance democratic norms of transparency, accountability, inclusivity, and rule of law internationally, and encourage our allies around the world to step up their strategic and financial support as well. In short, we must add a fourth D to the traditional three Ds of national strategy. Traditional three Ds of diplomacy, defense, and development need to add a fourth D, democracy to meet the strategic challenge of our time. The theologian Reinhold Niebuhr wrote, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, 
but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. That inclination to injustice we know from hard experience is dangerous for international stability and security. As Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. While democracies are not perfect and of course don't have a corner on wisdom, they do allow for peaceful self-correction when they go astray. America's historic strong commitment to free speech, free association, free inquiry, free media, free labor, free enterprise, free markets, rule of law and transparent and accountable governance has a long tradition that has earned the admiration of people in every corner of the globe for generations. It is a traditional source of American soft power. Today, free peoples may be facing the prospect of a new twilight struggle. We want to avoid that, but we may be, I think we are facing the prospect potentially of a new one. Albeit this time from authoritarian states peddling a false ideal of a strongman rule rather than a specific utopian ideology. But at its core, the contest of our times pits those who prioritize the glory of the state over the dignity of the individual. Americans have always known where they stood on that question. And so have most people all over the world. Whatever polls say about democracy's decline, no one will choose to live in a surveillance state or prefer a system in which their security and futures are controlled by unaccountable national authorities. That's true whether one is, lives in Turkey or Thailand, Ukraine or Uganda, China, Iran, Russia, or the United States for that matter. The biggest danger to those who worry about democracy's future then is succumbing to fatalism or paralyzing pessimism. Fatalism is neither a strategy nor worthy of those over the decades, indeed centuries, who have struggled, even given their lives, under much more difficult circumstances to defend their freedom and that of others. If the world is experiencing a democratic recession then, what is needed is a democratic stimulus in response. A democracy is forever a work in progress, so the contest of political ideas and ideals will always be a work in progress and be with us in some form going forward. One must not be naive about the challenge, but think more smartly about the tools that exist and those underutilized to help preserve and protect international safety, security, well-being, and individual dignity as our preferred way of life in the years to come. Thank you all very much for listening and look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you've given us a lot to think about. Uh, type of thing I think we don't think about quite as much as we should. While we're collecting uh, questions from, the, from our members and guests, I always take the opportunity to ask the first question myself. Yeah. That's a positive thing of being a, the moderator. Um, you talked a little bit about the U.S. being uh, an example to the world of democracy. Could you make a few more comments about how the recent events, the election denials, the uh, January 6th, et cetera, mm -hmm. have affected your work, uh, the work of your organization in uh, different parts of the world. Right. Well, as I say, it, is, uh, it does matter. People notice we are the bellwether when they see us operating in ways that are akin to what some will say banana republics or when they see the citadel of democracy um, on Capitol Hill be attacked as it was, I would meet with MPs, I remember sitting with M uh, MPs from Kenya, and they literally would shake their heads and said, you know, we're struggling here in Kenya. When that happens, you know, 
people, the ones who, uh, who are more autocratic or think what we're doing is naive, they go, that's what you want? Look, that's, that's chaos. The Chinese peddle that notion that democracy creates chaos. Democracy creates division. We can't afford democracy. So to the degree that we can't get our act together, it is a problem. You know, NDI traditionally does not make public statements about policy, or certainly things about here at home. We'll make statements about overseas, uh, constructive statements about an election, about what can be done better, always done in a very practical way. Here's what was not according to international standard, what was. January 6th was, a, was um, we felt we had to, and we did it along with, frankly, the International Republican Institute and with the National Endowment for Democracy jointly. We needed to send a signal this was not right. This was not what democracy is all about. We needed to sort of separate ourselves from that. Um, but uh, people get, I think people get adrenaline when they see our democracy work. When they see a model, everyone needs a model or a standard. We've never been perfect, as I say. American democracy has never been perfect. American society has never been perfect. But the sense that we were moving forward, that we were going in the right direction, I think inspired people that democracy can get better, that it can be as powerful, secure, uh, or at least as successful as that our democracy seemed to be. Uh, and to the degree that we don't show that face, we are less strong, we are less powerful, our soft power is affected. So uh, it didn't affect us entirely, indirectly, but we can see our partners being affected uh, on the margins. But after a period of time, they focus at home and they move out as if it didn't happen. Then one, could you comment a little on the uh, liberal versus illiberal democracies? And, you know, is an illiberal, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of Hungary, maybe what's going on in Israel now. Yeah. Is this viewed by the other, those who aren't democratic as failures of the system or um, things to look up to? Well, this is, these are the challenges to democracy that we see, that people have gamed the system. I mean, the same old guys, may I say, the same old guys um, doing the same old things, just with different rules, are getting, playing games with the system and getting some similar results. So, um, you know, what it shows, frankly, is that the institutions are weak in these democracies, that democracy does take time to gain ground. This stuff is not done in a generation, it's in generations. That there will be ups and downs, there will be declines. Uh, and there will be struggles, but um, we have to be mindful of how the system can be gamed. The democracy is not just elections. You can have free elections, but they're not necessarily fair if the election period is gamed out, if there's gerrymandering, if only certain people are able to vote, if there are weighted votes in certain countries, if the information environment is closed, if there's not free media, if the judiciary is not free, that's a degradation of democracy, so you start to say, this is actually degrading, and you have to call it out um, for what it is, rather than saying it's an illiberal democracy. That's an oxymoron, too. When it's that, like that, it's not a democracy anymore. Um, it's an illiberal political system. Um, and it means we have to, again, continue to work with our partners in those countries, and um, uh, take advantage of whatever opportunities continue to exist, to try to strengthen those democratic institutions, put things back on track. Someone wants to know how exactly democracies are undermined. By similar methods are being in the US now, is it, is it universal or are different countries, democracy is undermined in different ways? 
yeah, there are multiple ways that democracies are undermined. As I say, they're just cut the, I listed very intentionally those elements that go into a strong, uh, real democracy. It's not simply having an election, or it's not simply having a legislature or a political, you know, political parties. Those are the institutions, those are important, but it's how they interact. Uh, and you have to have free media, you have to have an independent judiciary. Um, so that's how you know, leaders start to chip away. There's a playbook. I mean, what Trump tried to do was not new. Uh, we watched, we see this all over the world. We've been watching it for, for decades. That's why many of us were terrified because we could see the playbook being, being implemented. Uh, that's why there's no, you know, um, there's a reason why CPAC went over to Hungary to go to Orban look at, and learn from Orban that they're of a, of a feather. Um, they may not be entirely the same on all of their policies, but they're similar in their view of what a political system should look like. And that political system is led by a strong man, and it doesn't have many checks on that strong man's power. Um, so that's where things get chipped away little by little, so that you don't have accountability, you don't have transparency, people are ex excluded, um, and therefore it's not democracy. So you have to disaggregate. That's why I, when I talk about democracy, I disaggregate it into those principles of transparency, accountability, inclusivity, uh, representation under law, and then judge according to those values rather than some generalized view of democracy that most people think, oh, they have political parties, they have a legislature, they have an election, so democracy's the problem. Democracy isn't delivering. No, it's, it's not, the problem isn't democracy, it's that democracy is not strong enough. The answer to it, to weak democracy, is better democracy, frankly. More accountability, transparency, um, and, and that basically is the, the uh, diagnosis of what we're seeing steadily around the world, but we're starting to see a backlash, little by little, hopefully. Very hopeful. There are quite a few questions here with a similar theme, and the one that seems to be most general is, how do we combat disinformation, both in the U.S.? You've, you've said that getting information out is, uh, you know, a key to, uh, yeah. to success, but there's so much disinformation out there. How do you distinguish one from the other? How do you get rid of the yeah. disinformation? And, and it's politically fraught, because when Department of uh, DHS, Homeland Security, established a disinformation division, I don't know if you read about this, actually done by an NDI alumna who is now a leader in, in, uh, in rooting out Russian disinformation around the world, she was given a platform under Biden to set up a, a section of DHS to look at disinformation and got attacked. And she actually had to leave the job and was, was really attacked brutally because of this question of what is disinformation and who judges. Uh, one person's information is in, and say, well, that's a lie. Well, I have free speech. And my lie, I have a right to say. Uh, and others say, no, this is disinformation, uh, conspiracy theory that should not be allowed a platform. So it becomes politicized, and this is dangerous for us. If we allow, if information is the lifeblood of a democracy or of, of a political system like, I mean, you have to have the ability to distinguish what is truth and what is not, operate on a common set of facts. Uh, I know you must be watching, I mean, people are talking about this all over, but this is the lifeblood. So playing with the information space of, now I'm, I'm one of those who believes in free speech. My, my instinct is the answer to bad information is better information, not censorship. 
Censorship should be, should be, I think, done very, very carefully of taking information out, which is why I make a point on digital literacy and uh, hope, you know, I would like the social media platforms to be more uh, civic-spirited and not promoting disinformation through their algorithms, promoting division, extreme you know, ideas and polarization, conspiracy theories, just to get eyeballs. Because we are wired to want <laughs> to absorb the information that we agree with. I mean, I wonder how we as, as human beings are wired to accept or absorb information. This is a challenge for us as we look, how we get out of our silos, as we get thrown behind screens during the pandemic and we're dealing with people that way rather than this way. We can have conversations, we can have you know, real engagement, real connections, though I'm on a stage and you're down there. I much rather get to the table and we'll connect better. It's a little bit, this is not quite democracy, but, um, but that connection face to face, there is no substitute for that. Democracy will die from digital living. We can't get rid of it, but we must harness this digital space um, and, and challenge ourselves, challenge the easy kind of uh, instincts that we have about information. If someone challenges it, let's go and see what, who's right. Discuss, I mean, that, if we're gonna survive as a democracy, that's, that's how it has to be done. So I'm wary of censorship, I'm wary of others making a judgment on what is this information, what is not. It has to be done on occasion when it's, there's a social good that needs to be protected. Um, it has to be done transparently uh, so that everyone knows what is being done. Uh, but it really is up to us, individually and together, to figure this out. That's the, I mean, being a citizen is a job. <laughs> it really is a job. We can't just assume it's what others do or we just uh, look elsewhere. We ha and I know that's why you all are here. People I know in Maine, if you want to go to see democracy in action, you come to Maine. Because everybody's forming groups, having debates, you know, learning about things. Well, I mean, not everybody, but I know there's, a, there's a, a lot of people here that still have that civic passion. That's the thing that will, will revive and I th uh, the American unity, American democracy, in my view. We just all need to be doing that and take that responsibility on ourselves. This is what I found particularly interesting. Does the UN serve any useful purpose today? What is the role of the UN in things like promoting democracy? The UN serve a useful purpose. <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, <laughs> the UN is a big organization. Um, and there are aspects of the UN that are challenging and, and wasteful and um, uh, bureaucratic and difficult to, to do things. Um, but they also do amazing work in the field. I mean, um, work on the ground to, to bring humanitarian assistance and promote um, the values that we talked about here. I mean, our UN, uh, UN values, as long as we don't allow China to get in there and play with them. But overall, the values of the system that are represented by, by the UN are constructive. Uh, and they, if they didn't, we didn't have those uh, institutions working, uh, we would have to create them somehow. So I, I know the UN gets a bad rap for, for legitimate reasons. Um, lots of big institutions, big international institutions get bad raps for, for similar reasons. But they do a lot of good work uh, on the ground that are keeping people afloat, keeping people fed, keeping people safe, keeping people uh, protected um, around the world. So kudos to that and we'll work on the rest. Let me move off of that and uh, into another area. 
You told us about a dozen positive effects of democracy, but is it possible that it works the other way around? For example, that a good economy makes for a democracy stronger? That a good economy makes, makes a democracy, democracy stronger or possible? Yes, oh, absolutely. Uh, the connection between economy, as I say, democracy has to deliver. The, the thing that, you know, Madeline used to say another thing, which always, you know, I can quote her forever, people want to vote and eat. <laughs> uh, it's a pretty basic idea, um, but people want to vote and they want to eat. So, and in the kind of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, if they can't eat, if people don't have a job, they don't have the dignity of a job or a dignity of, of providing for their family, they could look for anybody who will, who will give that to them or at least uh, pretend to give that to them. That's why there's a rise of demagogues. That's when, when you have polarization and people that feel on the outside who are not, not benefiting from whatever the system is, they will look for something else that will deliver for them. And that's where democracy degrades. So the economy has to, be, has to work for, for people. People have to feel that not everyone's equal in rising, but that they feel that it works, that the, the economy at least is fair enough, that it is not corrupt, that it is not you know, uh, benefiting one over the other. And I think that's what's happened in the United States. It's happened all around the world. Very similar types of things where people feel they are left behind. People feel the system is not working for them. I think it's working for just the elites in Washington or New York or wherever else, and they're playing this game and others are, are being left behind. So the macro economy can be good potentially, but if people are being left behind and then, you know, micro economy is not, um, then yes, I think it does come at the expense. It's very dangerous for democracy. And you, know, you say that kind of thing, and you'll get some people say, oh, socialism. You believe in socialism. No, it's not. So it has to, the, the economic development has to work reasonably well for everyone. It has to lift all boats in some fashion, or it has to deliver. Otherwise, uh, you will not be able to sustain the democracy. You may be able to, to establish it, but over time, my concern is sustaining it. Uh, and that's where you start to get the degradation. So people feel like, no, this is not working anymore for me. So I had another one that was the other side of it, but you've answered that question already. So um, let's, let's switch to a couple of country-specific things. Given your uh, experience in Ukraine, can you address the consistent allegations over the years that the government and its leaders are basically corrupt? Or is this an exaggeration? Not an exaggeration. Uh, the corruption problem in Ukraine is, is severe. Um, it was a huge deal before. The, uh, clearly, the U.S. Congress and others are focused on this, which is why President Zelensky has to account for every piece of material that we were providing. Billions and billions of dollars were providing, in my view, in a worthy effort, very worthy effort so that they can defend them themselves. Um, but the corruption issue is a huge deal. And this is why I mentioned earlier about how we have to stay committed to them now and to the future to make sure they build back democratically. People have given up everything in order to have a better life after this. Um, and they're not going to uh, allow for a snapback to the old ways of a highly corrupt oligarchic system. Uh, I mean, President Zelensky is connected to an oligarch. We don't know how close it is, but he's been, every politician is connected to an oligarch of some kind. Some are pernicious, some are Russian-backed, and we're really very, very uh, subversive. Others are just have a lot of money. But th this oligarchic system was 
chipping away at public confidence. And again, we were working on this at NDI and others were working on it. So yes, it's a huge problem. We have to work on that now and then make sure that whatever money goes into reconstruction when they win, when they win, that it's, that it's done in a way that promotes transparency and uh, a reasonable um, pro program of counter, countering corruption. And here's one on another part of the world. How can we uh, more, be more effective in promoting democracy in the increasingly autocratic governments of Central and South America? We seem to be losing ground in South America. Yeah, we are indeed. Um, what, do we, what should we do in Central and South America is the question. Uh, hard to say. I mean, it's like any other region. There's a rise of sort of populist strongmen. And, um, and there's, I think, again, a, very, a deep frustration there within those societies of, uh, and you can't speak to all of them, it's all different contexts, but in Central America, is the, people are feeling insecure, like gangs are running things. It's kind of like in the Philippines where, um, you know, the leader says, you're insecure, you don't feel safe, there's violence, give me the power and I will crush that. Law and order, number one. Again, if people don't have order or they don't, you know, they can't do business, then someone can rise as a singular power and say, democracy is too messy, democracy is too slow, not effective. You need someone, a tough hand, and we'll come in there and we'll smash it. Um, so it's been swinging from far left to far right. We've had this wave of sort of leftist, progressive uh, leaders that have, that have swung left in these countries to be kind of hard, single, strong men on law and order. But, you know, Brazil has swung left. Uh, others have swung left. Venezuela is an example of what happens when you take a society that had a tremendous vibrant economy and politics and you put somebody in there who just took every asset they had, degraded it, so now it's a basket case. Where the largest number of refugees in the world actually are out of Venezuela, I believe, not Ukraine, it's Venezuela into neighboring countries. People forget what's happening there, six million or seven million in, in Colombia and in, in Peru and elsewhere. Um, bad politics will cause that disruption and then people will push back. But elections are occurring and the elections are reasonable. It's just that it's a, it causes some more sort of strongman um, politics and, you know, we have to keep at it. Again, this is all, <laughs> all a work in progress. If you asked about Latin America 20 years ago, we would say, oh yeah, they're, on a they're doing really well. We're seeing progress. If you asked me about Burma, you know, five, six years ago, I'd say it's really on a knife's edge, but progress we hadn't seen in 50 years was occurring there. Um, but, um, you know, it's remarkable what politics can do and bad politics and bad leaders. When people in desperation turn to them, um, things can go really, really south quickly. And I always save the easiest question for last. Uh, what would NDI be doing if your remit mm, did include right, the U.S.? Right, right, right. <laughs> it's what I, no, it is, and I said this. I actually, yeah. Um, it's what I said earlier, in a way. I mean, it's something that I'd like to do more of, and, and, you know, when I can, is, is this kind of thing, or at least promote this kind of stuff, is people coming together and talking. I, I, I assume everybody in this room is not a Democrat or a Republican or an independent, but you come from a variety of backgrounds with a variety of, of political perspectives. Um, and have more of that, that interaction. It's at Elks Clubs, Elks Clubs are about, or, um, you know, we had a lot more of that social interaction. 
But that connection needs to happen more as citizens. That discussion, get away from the screens um, best we can and promote conversation. Not, you know, just telling you what I had for breakfast, you know. And and I'll just, I'll say this, and I don't want to go on too long because we're past time, but I saw Mark Zuckerberg give a speech at Georgetown a couple years ago. And he stood on a stage like this, and he talked about how what they do promotes democracy. And he talked about how it's all about free speech. He talked about Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King, and just kind of cloaked himself in all of that. That democracy is free speech, and and Facebook is free speech. Um, And then at the end of it, you know, people kind of dutifully applauded, and the the student behind me said, well, that was bull. I I thought, oh, thank God, no one's buying this. Um, She didn't actually say bull, by the way. But anyway, she said bull. And I I didn't write the thing because it was a tough time, but I wanted to write a piece and say that's not democracy. Someone standing on a stage talking at you is what Facebook does. (laughs) That's not democracy. Democracy is about conversation. That's what Zuckerberg doesn't get. And that's what he was was emblematic of what he was doing, was talking at people, and then, and then saying, look, I just committed democracy, you know. Um, but it is connecting and conversing and compromising, compromising. So it, that sounds easy to do. We know how hard it is. But I talk to students, I talk to, you know, universities about this. How do you come across the political spectrum and have those conversations? We need to find vehicles for that everywhere, somehow. Easier said than done, but that's what, if I were at NDI, working here, finding ways to promote that kind of thing, because otherwise, um, we're just gonna continue the way we are, which is not good. We have the experience of the, what's happening around the world, of what happens in polarized societies. Once polarized, it's very difficult to get unpolarized. Uh, maybe we can show and learn a lesson from that, do better, and then we can share those lessons with others. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today was a talk from Ambassador Derek Mitchell. If you missed part of the program or want to hear it again, you can always find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine. And Speaking in Maine is produced by me, KG Kimuladun. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.